Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The coronavirus pandemic hit late in the spring of the 2019-2020 school year, but its impact on schools and student learning didn't take a summer vacation. Millions of students across the nation who would have engaged in summer learning programs in a typical year found themselves stuck at home with no summer school options. And a year later, with COVID retreating and vaccination efforts well underway, what does summer learning look like? And what effect might summer programming this year have on remediating COVID learning loss? Well, here to discuss those questions with me is Christine Pitts. Christine is a resident policy fellow at the Center on Reinventing Public Education and the author of a recent analysis of school district summer learning plans. Previously, she served as the research and evaluation manager for Portland Public Schools and as a research scientist and policy advisor at NWEA. Christine, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having me. Before we get into COVID's impact on summer learning, uh, which we'll do in a minute, first, let's just establish a baseline for comparison. Just give us a thumbnail of what summer programming looked like in a typical school year before COVID. You know, I'm not entirely certain what that looks like for all of the districts that we analyzed, but I know that before COVID, you know, summer learning, at least for my kids, it was, you know, enrichment camps, a lot of uh, kind of play-based activity, some um, academic programming typically offered to uh, smaller groups of students identified based off of standardized assessments or grades, and things have changed a lot, that's for sure. So thinking back to April and May of 2020, I think it's fair to say that a lot of schools were pretty much focused on keeping their heads above water. So in the districts that you looked at, what did summer learning in 2020 look like? Yeah, I'm so glad that you're starting there. I think with COVID, what happens a lot is we get deep into this moment and our reaction. And we actually need to go back to the deep learning that we've been doing all along. Um, If we look back to spring of 2020, there was a report released that estimated we had lost nearly 3 million students to formal education seats. So thinking about the students not showing up online to remote learning, the stakes were really high in summer 2020. And if you remember, politics got in the way of a lot of our decision making at the district and state levels. Um, So there was this kind of underwhelming approach to summer programs last summer. We saw at SERPI and uh, the analysis of these districts that only 32% of districts were sharing any kind of summer programming as of May in 2020. And here we are a year later and, and things are pretty different. So in spring 2020, there was both the rotor wash of all the things that districts were trying to get um, their feet under them on, but were there any other resource constraints that led to maybe just a third offering some kind of summer program last summer? Yes. So we saw that the CARES Act funds typically went to the governor's office. The governors were setting priorities for how those funds should be used across uh, the state. Some of those priorities included summer learning. Sometimes legislatures were coming into special session to pass bills and kind of get those funds to districts as quickly as possible. But really um, the local politics a a lot of times got in the way, whether or not students should be remote or in-person during summer programming, Um, how case rates were functioning at the time across the country in different communities. 
some of those things really led to that only one third of the districts we reviewed releasing summer plans last year. So it wasn't just school districts that were in this roto wash. It was sort of the culture, but also the the flow of funds. And um, yeah, a lot of things were in, in flux. So let's fast forward to 2021. You conducted an analysis of summer learning programs back in April. Which districts did you look at and what did you find? Yeah, so I, I love coming into this work right now as I'm leaving a district because I actually turned to SERPI's uh, database a lot when I was in my role at the district. This district database they, they've established with over 100 districts that range in size and geography, serving nearly 10 million students. Um, it includes 30 of the largest urban school districts in our country, as well as many of the districts who are part of the Council of Great City Schools member organization and rural districts who work with SERPI often with that built-in relationships. Um, the database is, is uh, reviewed every month. So we go in and update it based on the new policies that are kind of surfacing at the local level. So you can imagine with American Rescue Plan funds now being distributed to districts across the country, that's kind of like our next uh, area we're focusing on. Roger. And what did you find about summer learning back in April? So back in April, we found that I think it was less than half of the districts had actually shared any type of summer programming plans. And the ones who had were really missing those key puzzle pieces that we know are critical for summer learning programs. Things like um, a focus on attendance rates and engagement, a focus on high dosage tutoring, which we know would build those academic on-ramps to grade level learning. So yeah, we were mostly underwhelmed in April. And then a few months later, you updated that analysis. Uh, here's hoping. How have things improved? <laughs> yes, we were pleasantly surprised in May when we went back and reviewed the analysis and found that nearly all of the 100 districts we reviewed were offering summer programs. Um, so not only was that up from April, but it was also way up from the 32% from last year, which was extremely promising. And, you know, what, what do we make of the difference between April and May? So just to remember back in April, which I think was a couple of years ago, uh, in that time, there was still a lot of energy getting students learning opportunities and where the in-person learning opportunities were already offered, getting kids in seats and so forth. So you could understand if districts were sort of putting summer learning plans back to whenever they might have the capacity to get to them, or you could just say, well, the plans weren't put up yet. Is there anything to read in this sort of late differences? Because by May, we were just four or six weeks out in a number of districts from these programs actually going live. Absolutely. I think you, you're spot on that. So what we know was happening in April, at least in Oregon, you know, where I was working at the time, our governor had announced an executive order that gave us about two weeks to get students back into seats. And we were, you know, all at capacity um, at, at the administrative level in the district trying to make that happen. So you're right, summer was put on the back burner for many of our districts. That said, in a typical year, what we know needs to happen is that summer plans should start in January, right? With some kind of a FTE at the district level, creating 
a cohesive plan based on evidence-based programs that kind of builds right into the typical school year as well. This is a very different year. And in April, we were seeing also the Biden administration kind of campaign for Build Back Better, the Secretary of Education creating his five-point plan for reopening schools, and then the American Rescue Plan passed. And we were able to start to understand where some of those COVID relief dollars were going to be focused across the country. So these plans may have been made late, but there are also a lot of pressures for them to be a little bit different. First of all, a pronounced COVID slide that was was really coming into into view. Um, maybe a little bit of breathing room, but but um, you know dollars funding it uh, coming in. Let me say that again so it sounds reasonable. Dollars coming in from several places, pressure from state and uh, federal sources to get these things up and running. All that leads to the question, are we going to see significant changes in summer offerings this year in response to COVID than what we would have seen in previous years? And let me just say that I could also understand that given a short timeline, you might not see much differences, right? Because we don't have much time to reinvent this thing, so let's run out the old playbook. What's your sense of, of what we're seeing across the board? Yeah, so you've brought up two really important points. The first is exactly why we are doing this analysis and why we're continuing to update it. And that is that we owe our students more than what we did last summer. They need this opportunity to be ready for fall and summer plans need to streamline right into fall planning, fall restart planning. And the second is that things are different and we should be thinking differently. And and in our analysis, we did see some really positive changes to these summer programs. So we know that on average, the programs were scheduled to run the recommended five weeks. And this is on par with a lot of the research that has been done coming out of RAND on effective summer learning programs, that they need, need to be at least 25 days. So that's promising. The other thing we saw that kind of ties into what we've already talked about is that a lot of the federal funds were being used to support community partnerships, ways to open up more seats for students to attend these summer programs. You know, so you see in Miami-Dade County Public Schools, they were partnering with multiple community organizations, helping to reach nearly 65,000 students. That's the number of seats they were hoping to open up. It's similar in a lot of other urban districts as well. So I think what's really important is that nearly 80% of the districts reviewed are offering some kind of enrichment programming in these summer, uh, summer learning options. What that means is, as you can imagine last year, and, and I'm not the first person to say this, students missed out on those interpersonal connections with their peers. We know that they needed that time to connect with peers and to connect with teachers. And having these enrichment options and having the American Rescue Plan funds able to support those community partners who can kind of be improving staff capacity, you know, improving the number of seats. All of those things is what we're seeing as highlights of the summer programs in our database. Christine, what would you tell listeners who are wondering, well, what are we actually expecting these summer programs to accomplish this summer? And that may be different from other years because it's unique. So I'll throw out a couple of questions and and just let you get at that purpose? Are they mostly aimed at catching students up to their grade level peers? I mean, this is sort of the summer school typical conception. Are they aimed at 
helping students tread water to prevent summer slide now? Are they credit recovery for a rough COVID year for a lot of students? Um, Where's the main thrust, if there is one, for these summer programs that we're seeing come online? You know, this question, I feel like my answer changes (laughs) all of the time. Um, and it's it's based on the timing, like back in, in winter and spring, I had my mom hat on and I was thinking about my own son who's in special education and, and needs extra supports and services. I was getting his uh, test scores and wondering what's going to happen in summer. Am I going to have an opportunity to send him to some kind of a three week camp to get extra support? And then as I got closer to the end of the year and dove into this district database and have started, you know, thinking more deeply about this summer, the reality is that summer is short and teachers and leaders, building leaders, families, students, everyone is tired from this year that, you know, everyone's tapped. So it's a balance, Nat. It's a balance between, yes, honing in on that catch up that needs to happen But lengthening the runway on that, it's not going to happen this summer. So how can we look beyond summer into those winter interim test scores or end of year test scores next year to be thinking about that catch up? And then two is also what I what I just mentioned around the interpersonal skill development, focusing in on getting students access to those social services that they really need to be healthy, well um, prepared individuals and and supporting them and their families. So, Christine, your analysis noted that most districts reached a length of their summer programs of that recommended 25 days that at least has some evidence. And one would think longer is better for trying to achieve things. But it, it looks like 44 of the 100 districts offered less than that. That seems pretty short. What do we expect students to really get out of you know, three-week programs? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is when I was saying that we need to strike the balance between academic rigor this summer and re-engagement with students. This is exactly it. If students are going to be there for less than the the 25 days or five weeks, I think it's really important for us to hone in on why they're there. You know, like I said in the beginning, we lost a lot of students over the past year and a half because taking attendance was tough. Logging in was tough getting home visits was tough. So how can we use that short amount of time to actually rebuild those relationships, re-engage the students in in the school setting? Um, One of the things I've been talking about too is kind of building back that stamina for like learning, like this is what it looks like to get to the school building, get inside, you know, all of those things that we really kind of just lost last year and we're trying to only rebuild back in spring with just a few short months. So summertime is, is an opportunity for us to re-engage with those students, maybe build new connections for different community services that their families are in need of during the summer. A lot of times during the summer, you know, those, those services kind of fall away because it's not a typical school year with that uh, infrastructure and setting at the building. So I, I think this is the, really the moment for us to kind of think about students as, you know, whole children, uh, and their families and their communities all all together. Yeah, I, I completely hear what you're saying, because when you think about this, we can focus on test scores and other metrics, but a lot of this just grammar of schooling stuff that kids know and kids bring back in a year after year, it does seem like school districts have a lot of work to do before they get up and running in the fall. 
in just getting that grammar back uh, to where students can do it, and and not only just being able to run through the the sort of reps of a school day and so forth, but also yeah, getting the stamina so that they're being more productive. Exactly. So all year we've been looking at you know what options are offered at different districts and trying to get an idea of what students are receiving and squinting through a glass darkly at how many are actually taking advantage of in-person options. So that's mm-hmm. probably still a question when there's a lot of nervousness, um, there's different vaccination rates and, and, and different offerings. But what can you say about student attendance? Are the programs that districts are putting out getting lots of attendance? And are we reaching the kinds of students who need it the most? Or is it just too early to say? You know, at this point, I think it's too early to say. Um, Across the country, some summer programs started early in June, and some are just starting in a few weeks in in late July. So I think it's too early to talk about attendance. I do know that in terms of the programs being offered, there is some flags that we need to look at, especially as we start ramping up for fall and the types of programs we're offering then. Um, So we know that our students require personalized approaches and and those uh, more intentional plans to meet them where they are, especially our vulnerable students. So if you think about our English language learners or students receiving special education services or the students that we were kind of just talking about who are transitioning into a new uh, grade band. So your kindergartners, you know, your middle schoolers and your high schoolers. All of those students require special programming in the summer, and we really saw less of that than we had hoped. So we're talking about about 40% of the districts are providing English language learner student services, and it's similar for students with special education services and then those transition programs as well. Yeah, again, this goes back to what you were saying. Summer programming is hard because it's not prime time for schools, and Uh, you know, there's a big hole to fill. So, Christine, knowing about who actually attended these programs is a little bit hard. What approaches does districts use to find the kids that were most in need of these programs after a a, a rough year? Was this a heavy data-driven exercise, uh, maybe constrained by time, or was it sort of open enrollment? We'll see who comes. Yeah, I think time was critical, which we've already touched on, you know, capacity at the district level. The majority of districts really didn't even specify how they were identifying students for any kind of intervention program during the summer. So we know that only about a third of districts had any information at all, and only a handful of them were using standardized assessment data to identify students who were to um, attend their academic intervention programs over the summer. The other districts were using things like grades from this year, course failure rates, attendance, you know, those more subjective measures in a school district. And this is a little problematic this year because those measures really aren't reliable. Think about attendance, right? If you have students showing up to online learning but turning their camera off, 
In districts, sometimes taking attendance really wasn't done with fidelity across the country. So attendance might not be that best uh, metric of whether or not a student needs to be in summer programming. I think it's really important, especially as we move into fall, that this flag becomes kind of a call to action for the value of data as we start to define those learning options next year. So we've talked a good bit about what summer learning looks like currently, but I want to talk a little bit more about what it should look like. So in addition to your analysis of current summer learning plans, you and some colleagues at SERPI recently released a report uh, called Six Principles for Summer Learning and Beyond. And you looked at six model summer learning plans from districts across the country. What are some of the things those six districts are doing particularly well? I think what's notable about those districts is really their focus on accessing programs. So you're thinking through like the big changes that you could make to summer programs, whether it's like I was talking about before, uh, increasing the number of seats being offered. So Guilford County Schools in Greensboro, North Carolina, they actually increased their seats from just a few thousand to like 8,000. And then once enrollment started, they ended up enrolling, I think, near 12,000 students into their summer programs. And a lot of that they made available by using those federal COVID relief dollars and really partnering with, with other organizations to ensure that they had enough programming available for all of those students. Other things include uh, removing barriers to getting to summer programs. So if you think about older students who might be required at their home to be providing childcare services for younger siblings, creating those kind of in-district childcare centers is a really cool way for districts to support those students to get to programming. So you've got six principles. I'm sure some of them are harder to meet than others. What are some of the principles that are important but a reach for a lot of districts? Um, I think things that would be a reach for districts have to do with the things that are out of their control. So if you think about uh, recruiting teachers, that's really tough, right? Especially after the year of COVID, teachers are you know, ready for a respite, for a time to relax, and getting them back into the classroom is tough this year. And, and it may likely be tough next year as well. We don't know what's to come. So a lot of a lot of our recommendations around recruiting teachers is actually focused on thinking outside of the box. So you know that in communities, we saw community organizations showing up to support students in new ways this year, whether it was providing out of school time services, extra academic help, maybe even running a learning pod in a community. And how can we pull in those types of professionals who are newer to the industry, but working with states and other, you know, state departments of education, other certification organizations to get them pathways to becoming certified teachers. I think that's one unique recommendation that we have that kind of expands this idea about focusing in on one way to recruit staff for summer programming. So there's a lot of efforts underway this summer. Some of them are going to look more like these ideals, some less so. It's a stressful year um, and a difficult summer. How do we know, particularly in this COVID year, whether these different summer interventions are going to prove successful or not? Or is it just so hard to kind of get a baseline of where we're looking at that uh, 
it's not really something that we can cleanly uh, take lessons from and evaluate, you know, this time next year. Yeah. So this was my job at Portland Public Schools. I'm so glad you asked this question because I, I, you know, going through the idea of designing an evaluation of summer programming, uh, it was just really complicated. And talking to colleagues and peers and other researchers about how to model this type of work, it kind of flagged to me that everything, even that this analysis talks about, it's really not just about summer. It's about the long-term recovery that we need to be planning for and implementing. So I think just today, you know, Secretary Cardona is touring the country to look at districts and what they're offering this summer as a kind of um, crystal ball, if you will, for what's to come in fall. I think that's how we need to be thinking about this. The flags that I've described, you know, not having enough personalized approaches to learning acceleration, these are the types of things that we need to be looking at implementing. And in terms of how to evaluate that, well, this summer, I would suggest that folks focus in on those qualitative aspects, the storytelling, because we're not going to have that uh, reliable type of data to, to really look at until probably winter. If you think about the winter interim scores or maybe even the end of next year. Um, I think this summer, the programs that we're seeing are so extremely valuable and likely very different than we've ever seen before in summer. The way that community organizations are being brought in to you know, school districts, uh, it's very unique. And the way to capture that is through that storytelling piece, doing interviews of teachers, students, maybe even letting students lead some research themselves and their own experiences in summer, the, those types of things. That, that's how I think we would tell the story of this summer for now. So. You mentioned several times the American Rescue Plan and uh, the ESSER funds that came through that were, they were large. I mean, there's a lot of money out there in, in, in districts, uh, leaving some districts for searching for prudent ways to use it. But these summer programs, yes, they can be resource intensive, but a lot of these are just uh, sort of, it seems to me, marginal increases, even if you spend twice as much money, you've already been spending this. I'm wondering, is summer learning as an intervention for COVID learning loss likely to be a good investment? And how much of an investment do we expect it to actually be? This is a great question. I think it's similar to what I just spelled out in that summer alone, the summer programs that we are seeing are not going to be the intervention that is going to recover students from the unfinished learning that happened over the last year and a half. Um, That said, we know from decades of research regarding summer slide that summer programs do help in recovering that learning, but it's not gonna be enough, which is why we need to build that cohesion into the programming and the plans you know, during the rest of this year and and well beyond this year, honestly. Um, And in terms of how much funds we need to be investing into summer, you know, it it depends, Nat, that (laughs) it it really depends on the quality of programming, the leadership at the the district level, um, the types of supports and guidance and paths that states have been able to provide districts. We uh, are in a moment right now where we really need that kind of bold, innovative leadership. 
you know, districts, like you said, have this huge tranche of dollars and understanding where to invest those dollars. It, it, it takes capacity and time. And we need a, just that big, bold leadership right now to help districts and support them through that process. So oddly, for once, we find ourselves in a situation with perhaps more financial resources, but strapped for time. And uh, it's, it's an odd flip to, to be on this side of. So looking beyond COVID to the future of summer learning, do you think there are lasting differences that we'll see from this summer? Again, where there are resources to do new things if if we have constraints with 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 time and and capacity. Um and do you think that eventually we'll get to a point where most kids are engaging in some sort of of, of summer learning as as a regular part of their education? Well, I think it's a little bit bigger than that. So there's a couple things that learning during COVID uh changed for us in, in schools. One of them is this concept of time or engagement. You know, if you think of the idea of butts and seats, like how much time are kids learning? A lot of that was completely uh, broken apart during COVID. We had students learning asynchronously. We had um, new apps being implemented to help kids learn. So I think that, you know, whether or not students are gonna come to summer more often or we're gonna have more seats for summer, that's still to be to determined because we don't really know what the future of you know engagement and time on task looks like in schools yet. Uh, it's exciting because I think we're in a moment to really redefine what that means and expand those options. I think one of the big improvements that I hope sticks around in future summers and future school years is that school buildings and learning doesn't just happen within those four walls. This idea of school is so much bigger than that. And the teaching and learning process this year, we kind of saw parents coming closer to the teaching and learning than ever. And similarly, during summer, we're seeing our community organizations get closer to those services that schools provide. In years past, I think there have been a lot of silos uh, via you know, the intergovernmental processes that happen in a city or a district. And now with these COVID relief dollars, we're seeing people kind of come together and design one big cohesive plan for a community in terms of how services are provided. You know what, it's, it's more helpful for families, it's helpful for the service providers themselves, and it's helpful for districts because it reduces the capacity for that planning and recruitment and, and all of those administrative pieces. All right. So, you know, a little ray of hope uh, there at, at the end. Christine, thanks for coming on the report card. It sounds like it's going to be a long, hot summer and a long, hard recovery from this pandemic. And uh, thanks for coming to talk about how summer learning might play into that. My pleasure. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Christine Pitts. We'll include a link to Christine's recent analysis and report in today's show notes. As always, I want to thank our producer, Matt Rice, who makes this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute and leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. Send us your comments, topic suggestions, or questions to ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. Thank you.